get this that really helps uh, see books of the Bible and where they fit and how they go together and what God's doing. And um, I had to teach overview of the Bible to freshmen in high school for my student teaching uh, years and years ago. And uh, I would always start with, uh, we just open up the Lamentations and read in Lamentations and some of the language and all this stuff and talk about how it's very hard to open your Bible and just read Lamentations if you don't know what's going on. And so, and it's the same with so many books of the Bible. And Dr. Cooper, when I took this class, taught it as, as these main head, headings on your outline are buckets. They're things that we can, we can then put things in, different stories and when they take place, and it helps us to organize and keep them in our minds. And so you'll see as, as we begin this morning, this, this actually is in the little packet I gave you on little, littler things. In that class, I had to make uh, what we call the Bible chart. And it's visually to represent the overview of the Bible, and it helps you remember it. And uh, my professor, she knew what she was doing because we would do that. And then it was like, after you'd spent all this time, you knew it. <laughs> after you spent hours and hours on all these things. And so, uh, as you'll see, there's main headings that uh, creation and purpose and need, and we'll get to those in a second. But that, as you get that picture, then that helps you to understand how things fit in with the rest of Scripture. So that's the outline. And then you'll notice on these, my chart thing, Creation, that's the big heading. The big heading's on the top of it, and then the bottom is usually the passages that correspond with it. So that's just so you know how, how that goes together, and hopefully that makes some sense. So with that said, because of just time constraints, we're just going to go through the whole thing uh, fairly quickly. So uh, obviously the first heading, the big one, is, is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. When we get to that, we get that picture. Um, there's so many things that we could hit on, and because we're doing it quickly, there's just I'm going to hit kind of the... The big, the big highlights, but when we look at creation, uh, we see from the very beginning the Trinity is involved. It's God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are moving in all part of creation. They're there together. They're creating all things. God makes all things out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there's something. And before that was just God. And so all things are made through Him. John 1 says the same thing. Nothing was made without Christ and everything that was made was made through him and and you get that picture and so what happens is God creates everything the heavens and the earth and all that's in it and then he makes uh, you get to Genesis 1 26 and 27 and God created man in his own image and so we get man coming in into the uh, into the equation and God creates man and he puts them uh, it's, it's Psalms 8 says at the top of creation that man is made uh, at the very top of God's creation. And so Psalm 8 says, uh, When I look at, the, at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And so what we get is God creates all things, but he makes man at the top of his creation because it's the only thing that's made in his image. And so we have creation, God makes all things, and then we start to move to purpose. Because man is made in God's image, and it's the only thing that's made in God's image. And as Psalms 8 says, it starts to tell us, and we see this clearly throughout Scripture, uh, we see it even at the end of Genesis 1. God says that man's uh, the crown, and he's put him over creation, but then he's to take care of creation. He's to have... Uh, to be ruling with God over it. He put us at the top and then he allows us to be part of that. Uh, that's part of our purpose, but that's just the small part, the day-to-day part. But then there's also the, the big idea part that we're to be one with God, that we're to be in relationship with God. He makes us 
in his image to reflect him and to glorify him. We say that a lot, to glorify him is to reflect back who he is. Uh, that we're to find our joy and our worth ultimately in him. That he's, uh, that we're his image bearers. That he's made us like him, although we're lower than him. We're not, we're not a little God. We're, we're far less than the greatness of who God is, but we're made in his image so that we can have a relationship with him. And so you begin, uh, to see that in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates and he tells them to, ha- to be over the earth and to subdue it and to do all these things. And when we get when God's purpose is, is our ultimate purpose is to have relationship with God, we see it in Genesis 1 with God saying, uh, basically I've got one rule. In the garden in Genesis 2, the one rule in Genesis 2.17 is, is trust me. There's some trees and there's some fruit and there's this one tree and I just don't want you to eat from this one and the only rule I have is that you trust me. And so what God's seeking is a relationship with man. I want to be in this relationship, this perfect relationship with you and the way it works is you you trust me. You trust me and you'll be blessed and everything will go well. And so he he tells them that and then the, the flip side of that and we see this all the way through Scripture. We're going to see it this morning in our time uh, with the sermon in Deuteronomy is that there's blessing and curses, right? If you, if you trust God and you do what He says, everything goes great. And if you decide to ignore Him, which is what we've been saying over and over, ignoring God and the world He created is sin. If we decide to sin, there's, there's curses, there's bad things that happen. And that's what God says in Genesis 2. If you ignore me and you do what I have told you not to do, you'll die. And that's what it says in Genesis 2. And if you know the story, everything's perfect and it's all these things, and then Adam and Eve decide to go against God. And that gets us to our third heading. And that's where the need is introduced. Our need because we decide to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we decide to not trust Him. And so what happens is uh, we have a need. And that's where Genesis 3 starts. And that's the big heading over Genesis 3 through 11. Everything is perfect and it's set up the way God would have it. And uh, what immediately happens is we blow it. We decide that we won't trust Him. Things begin to disintegrate and fall apart. Um, our relationships, instead of reflecting back who God is perfectly, we no longer do that. Uh, it's like instead of a well-polished mirror that reflects Him back, it's a very faint image now because we're now distorted it through sin and ignoring Him. And it unravels uh, not only our relationship with God, it cuts our relationship off with God, but it also unravels relationships with one another. And so we see that right from the garden when Adam and Eve suddenly are pointing fingers at each other and they're hiding and they're doing all these things. And so you get this picture. You know, as Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Right? They decide to sin, to ignore God and what He's told them, and so they will die. And it's death, ultimately physical death, but it's spiritual death and emotional and all the things that go with it and everything starts to unravel. But the story of the picture, the big picture, is as soon as that happens, Genesis 3.15 right in the midst of all the mess and the problem, God immediately says, I'm going to fix the problem. And so the very first gospel, the very first promise of a Savior, the very first promise to fix all this is in Genesis 3.15. God says, I'm going to send a man that's going to come through Eve's uh, seed and he will crush the serpent that is Satan and take care of all evil. So we get the promise right away in Genesis 3. But what we see in the Bible, big picture, Genesis 3 through 11. So you have Adam and Eve sin and all this happens. God makes the promise. He tells them they have to leave the garden, but everything's falling apart. And you see the growth of sin in Genesis 3 through 11. Right? You get to Genesis 4 and you have the first murder. 
Cain and Abel. And then right after that, we go into the story of Noah, and you see that uh, evil is all throughout the world. Um, you see it in everything. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And so what we get is, we go from the first sin and things start to disintegrate to a rapid growth of sin. And that's what we see, Genesis 3 through 11. It gets so great that God sends the flood and calls Noah out. We see that right in the, in the middle of that section in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. And it keeps going until we have the flood. Uh, you've got here in this, this one, it's kind of hard to see it's faint up there, but uh, Cain and Abel and then, and then the flood taking place. And then right after that, that's the Tower of Babel. Right? You get to Genesis uh, 11 and the Tower of Babel and we get kind of the culmination of the picture of our sin growing, the growth of our sin in the Tower of Babel. And the reason we see it, uh, the reason that happens, or, or we say it's kind of the culmination, is if, if you remember, at the beginning of Genesis 11, it's Genesis 11 4, it actually says, um, uh, they, the people get together and they decide to build this, this tower and to do this thing, but their reason for doing it Genesis 11.4 says, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Right? So, so we've been made to point back to who God is and to glorify Him. That's what we're made for. And we see by Genesis 11 that people are all about let's do some great things so we make a name for ourselves. They've switched it. They've got it completely backwards. And so what we see, the beginning part of the story in that heading, that third heading that we're talking about is the growth of sin or the need. So Genesis 1 through 11 is, or I'm sorry, 3 through 11 from the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden through 11 is the need. The growth of sin and how we need a Savior and how everything is out of whack and it's all backwards now. And we've decided to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so that's what you have for the first, those first three headings and that's very foundational. Obviously, we could spend a long, long time on all of that, but to do all this quickly, we're just we're going to leave it right there. But so the fourth heading becomes, and this really becomes the fourth heading. You'll see at the top there, I'm calling it the channel, the channel of salvation, and that really spans from Genesis 12 until the New Testament, until Matthew, until we get to the Gospels. And so what we see is the way God's moving all throughout history, pointing to a Savior coming. And so that's what we see through Genesis 12 on down all the way until we get to Jesus. And we've been hitting on this in our sermon series. We've covered some of this. Uh, when we go from Genesis 11 to 12, it goes from the, the sin of the whole world and how messed up everything is to God choosing one man to start his promise, to pick up what he had done in Genesis 3:15, where he had said, I'm going to send a Savior, I'm going to do this. Genesis 12, <clears throat> we pick that up again. And so what happens in Genesis 12... One through four is God calls out Abram, who will later be renamed Abraham, and he tells him, I'm going to do this through you. I've chosen you, Abraham. And he gives them the Abrahamic covenant, or we call it, or covenant we simply mean promise, a promise to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant promises three things, that you will have a great number of descendants, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and ultimately, all of that is pointing to, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, being Christ. And so that's the promise. And what happens throughout Scripture is the promise gets bigger and bigger. Or, or I should say it gets more refined is a good way to say it. Successive uh, covenants, promises that God makes, He keeps clarifying more and more how the Savior's going to come and what He's going to do and who He's going to be. But it all starts with Abraham. 
And so as we start to work our way through, uh, through Genesis, you get that, uh, the first heading under that channel. And the way I've done it is you'll see on that outline, it says fourth is the channel, and then you've got A, B, C, all the way down to, I think, H. Um, that's that's the, the subheadings of the channel of salvation, how God's moving. And so if we learn these basic, basic big picture and then just those few subheadings, you can get a real good grasp of the, all of Scripture and what's happening and how God's moving. And so the first subheading there is we call it the patriarchs. The patriarchs are, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the faith, the, those first three generations that God's dealing with them. It goes from Abraham to Isaac. Uh, in Genesis 26, God uh, redoes his covenant or his promise with Isaac. He says, now it's coming through you. Isaac, you're the son of the promise. This is coming through you. And then eventually it moves to Jacob. God tells Jacob also. And he keeps telling him the same thing. I'm going to give you all these descendants. I'm going to give you, make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And he keeps telling them over and over. And so from Genesis 12 through 50, we see this, this starting. It's just the fledgling little seed of the nation and the people. Because what happens in Genesis 12 through 15 is just finally, uh, Abraham finally has a son when he's 100 years old and then uh, Isaac comes and then he finally has a son in Jacob and then Jacob starts to really take off with all these kids and the 12 tribes of Israel and all his sons. And so the nation starts to form. It starts to happen. But you get all the way down to the end of Genesis in Genesis chapter 50 and there's only 70 people. And so it's Abraham, descendants, Jacob and his 12 sons and them together. And if you know the story, uh, they go down and they end up in Egypt. They sell Joseph and that whole story of Joseph and they end up in Egypt. And so what happens is God takes them and he begins to do this and we're following this story of how the line and how the Savior will come. And they've grown to, by the end, or really the beginning of Exodus, between Genesis and Exodus, from the beginning there to the, to the from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, they grow from uh, just a, a few small, um, the 70 that goes down to Egypt, to 2 to 3 million at the beginning of Exodus. And so what happens, this, sorry, I didn't go ahead enough, this is the beginning of the nation with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they've gone down to Egypt. Right? So it says, if you can read that, it says they brought Joseph into Egypt, and that's from Genesis 30. What is that, seven? It's so small, I can't read it. Uh, so they come down, and then, so then it, they brought them down. God pre- preserves them. He brings them. They start to uh, multiply into a great number. And so what we have is they've gone into slavery in Egypt. That's how Exodus opens. The people are crying out to God, and he raises up Moses to bring them. Uh, he raises up Moses to go and, and be the one that delivers them out at the beginning of Exodus. And so... What we see, though, is, is God calls Moses out to go and get the people at the beginning of Exodus, and he's going to lead them out, and he's going to do this. We see the first part of the promise being fulfilled. The very first part of the promise is, I'm going to give you a ton of descendants, Abraham, as many as the stars, and he tell, takes them outside and tells them all those things and points the picture out. And so when we get to the beginning of Exodus, he's got three million descendants. Over a few hundred years, they've just grown like crazy, millions of people. And so the first part is starting to happen, but the other things seem very distant because they're in slavery. They're in Egypt. They're not in the land that God promised Abraham. It's not the land that he took them to. They're, they're far away, and they're in slavery, and everything seems a mess. But So what God does is he, he calls uh, Moses out, and he begins to mold them into his people. 
into this nation that, that starts to happen. And he begins to bring them out. And if you know the story, he miraculously saves them from Egypt. God shows his power to the most powerful nation in the world because these are my people and I've chosen them and I'm bringing them out. And he shows his power and he starts to bring them out and he gives them an identity. Uh, he begins to, uh, if they, they're taken out from the parting of the Red Sea and they go out to Mount Sinai. That's the, the top picture. And yeah, that is a picture that's been manipulated of Charlton Heston from the Ten Commandments. So that's, that's all I could find to do with it. But, uh, and everyone under like 40 has no idea who that is or what that means. So that's okay. Um, but so he takes them out into the land and begins to bring them into being uh, a nation. He gives them the Ten Commandments through Moses. They gather around. They hear God audibly speak from the mountain. They see the Ten Commandments. They hear God's Word. He begins to tell them what it looks like, how they're to relate to a holy and perfect God, even though they're sinful, that there's this problem. And so that starts to happen, and he starts to show them what true worship is. He takes care of them through the manna. He he feeds them. Uh, The temple is there. The fire that's over the temple at night, the cloud by day. He's leading them wherever they go. He's taking them along, and he's bringing them back to the Promised Land. So the second part of the... uh, of the equation that I'll give you a land he's bringing them back to that but they're not there and they wonder uh, you know the story they wonder because of their rebellion there's all ty- types of problems they wonder that's them wandering in the desert following the cloud and uh, they wander around in the desert for a time and uh, so that's, that's uh, God leads them and, and graciously takes care of them and this all covers Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy really Exodus through Deuteronomy all is taking place and this morning what we're going to look at when we go for, for picking this back up with our sermon series, we're just going to look at the book of Deuteronomy today. And Deuteronomy is simply, God brings them to the edge of the land and they're about to go in and Moses is old and he's told Moses, you're not going in and this is kind of your last time to address the people. And so Moses does a series of three sermons and he re- recaps all this for them. And that's what he tells them right before they get ready. He's preparing them to take the land. And so they get to the, the edge of the land in Deuteronomy and then he, he gives this and then the, the torch gets passed from Moses to Joshua. He's succeeded by Joshua, who will be the one that leads them into the promised land. And then uh, the picture there, if you can see it, is them marching around the walls at Jericho. And that's just to symbolize that as they go in and they take the land, they take it as God's promised them that God's the one doing the work. He's the one that's protecting them. He miraculously is giving them the victories and doing all this all along the way. And he takes them in. And he gives them the land and he tells them how to set it up and how they're to live and certain things that they're supposed to do. They're supposed to drive out all that are there. They're supposed to rid the land of all the pagan ritual and the horrible things that are happening. And he gives them very specific things that he wants them to do. It's his holy set apart people and what it's to look like. And so they go in and they take the land and they divide it up like he tells them between the 12 tribes and they... Uh, the Levites become the priests and they set up uh, the worship and all these things that happen. And he gives them all these specific instructions. You don't intermarry. You don't take pagan religions and mix it with my set-apart holy nation that you are. Uh, God sets them up where he does in the known world. They're literally right in the center of the known world. God sets them up there, gives them that land so that they can be a light to show what true worship looks like and who God is. And so that's their job and what they're to be. And so they go in and they take the land and he gives them the land. And so we have Abraham, the promise to Abraham, I'll give you a great number of descendants, now it's millions upon millions. I will give you a land, he gives them the land. 
Joshua 21 says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And so God gives them the land, and so you've got the first two parts. He's given them the land, and He's given them a great number of descendants. And so we're, kind of, we're halfway there on the things. But all the specific instructions that Moses gives in Deuteronomy and all the things, they basically follow half-heartedly for a little while. They do well when Joshua is there, when they have a strong leader, but as Joshua dies off, they start to forget a lot of things, and they start to mess up, and that's where you get to the book of Judges. So the cycle is they've taken the land and they're in and things are pretty good and they're set up, but then they start to forget what God's done. And the book of Judges is seven cycles that happens over 350 years. And in those cycles, what they do is they're, they're all messed up and they forget God. And so God allows those around them to start to come in and taking captives and they start to lose things and they go into all sorts of hardships and then they cry out to God. And so he raises up a leader or a judge. And then they come and they lead them back and everybody, there's a revival and then it's short-lived and they go right back around. And so there's 13 judges in the book of Judges and that cycle goes over and over. And it happens over 350 years, uh, them turning to idolatry and then God bringing them back and then doing it again and bringing them back and doing it again. And so you see that over and over. And so what happens at the end of Judges, the book basically starts to end at the beginning of, of Samuel, who is the last judge. He basically pulls them out of this. God chooses Samuel and uses him. He's the last judge that brings him out of this. And so the last judge of Samuel starts a new period in the channel. And it's what we call the United Kingdom. For a time, Samuel's kind of over as the judge, but it begins to uh, transition into the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is when Israel is united as one kingdom under a king. The problem is, and I'll go back to this one for just a second, it says, you see here at the bottom, if you can read that, it says, appoint us a king. And that's in the beginning of Samuel, Samuel 8. The people demand a king. We want a king. Doesn't sound so bad. The problem is they say, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations. You see, God's plan all along was they wouldn't be like the other nations, that they would be a holy set-apart nation so everyone would see what God, who He is and what He looks like. And they reject that. And they say, give us a king. And so God finally says, okay, Samuel, tell them I'll give them a king. But they're not going to like it because kings tax you and they take your stuff and they do lots of things and they rule over you. And he says, but fine, let them have it. And so he lets them have a king and they reject God as their king and they have a king. But what happens in that time is God is still faithful and his promises still happen. First, God leads uh, Samuel to Saul. Saul's the first king and he's the king for 40 years. Saul uh, starts out okay. But he becomes very arrogant. He decides often not to listen to God. He doesn't really need to listen to Samuel, the prophet that God set out, and he does some bad things, and he really starts to fall apart. And so what happens is we move from Saul to David. David becomes king, and he's king for 40 years. The Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, David was so good on a lot of things, but he also had lots and lots of flaws. Uh, lots of sins that, that kept coming up and different things, and he did all types of things, the biggest being the, you know, the story of Bathsheba, when he has an affair and takes a wife and does all these things and has a man killed and does all this. Uh, through that time, just as we're looking at big picture of the Bible, uh, David writes 73 of the Psalms. He's, he's a musician and a, and a worship guy and all these things, and he's so good on lots of things, but his downfall uh, he had some sins that, that bring him to a downfall and he starts to fall off. 
And so then we, but in that time, before I even move on to Solomon, in that time, David does a lot of great things and, and conquers a lot and a lot of things are set up. And so Israel hits their peak as a nation. They become a great nation as God promised Abraham under David and then under Solomon. Solomon keeps that going. Solomon uh, takes over after David. And he does a lot of things well at the beginning. He builds the temple. David wanted to build the temple. God wouldn't let him because David was a warrior. But he says, I'll let Solomon do it. And Solomon starts out, okay, but the way to remember Solomon, this is stuck in my mind for years, is, is the four W's. Solomon had wealth, wisdom, worship, and women. And so what happens with Solomon is he's got all the wealth and all the wisdom and the kingdom's the greatest in the world and all these things and he's conquering all these things. He makes the temple, but then he begins to take wives and concubines from everything he's conquering and he ends up with a thousand wives slash concubines. And the problem is it leads to his downfall because he starts to incorporate their pagan gods and rituals into worship and he starts to build, add on to the temple, I'll have a room over here for this god and for this thing and it just disintegrates all of it. And instead of being a set-apart holy nation, they start to look like everything else. They start to bring all of it in, and so it all starts to crumble and fall apart. So you move from the United Kingdom that lasts 120 years, 40 years for each one of those three kings, and then it starts to fall apart. And with, with Solomon's uh, children, and there's all kinds of mess that happens. It divides into two. And you get this in Kings and Chronicles. It divides into two nations, Israel and Judah. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And it's a mess. And it's because they've, they've brought in all these other influences. Really, it goes all the way back to what Moses tells them in Deuteronomy. Do not intermarry. Do not take these other religions. Don't, this has plagued them for years and years, for hundreds of years. And it's still causing them problems. And now they split. And what you end up with is the northern kingdom. There's 19 kings in the northern kingdom that make up the northern kingdom and they were all awful. They were all evil. They didn't seek God. They were a mess. They didn't really care. And so what you had was they were messed up. And so that's where the prophets come in. This is how the prophets fit into the Bible. So we split into two kingdoms but then the prophets go and God sends the prophets and tells them, turn back. You're messed up. What are you doing? And He tells them over and over. So to the northern kingdom you have Hosea and Amos and Elijah and Elisha. And they go and they keep continually saying, no, 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 turn back to God, turn back to God, turn back. And they don't listen. And they just keep going. And so what happens is God raises up Assyria. And they take Israel out in 722 B.C. And it is not a pretty picture of what happens, what God allows the consequences of their sin to come to fruition. When Assyria comes in, uh, when you read about the Assyrians and what they were like uh they skinned people alive. You don't really need to say much more beyond that to see how awful and horrible they were and what was going on. They left uh, piles of bones to inspire terror of the places they conquered. Just bodies laying there. They were awful. And they were horrible and they came in and they took them out. But what happens, and this just, just gives you background to later on when you read in the Gospels and so on and so forth, uh, when they come in, they intermarry they take people out. They destroy everything. They do away with it. They overtake Israel. Now Assyria is there. But what happens is a lot of them stay and hang around and they intermarry. That's how we get the Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans come from. They're half-breeds between the Jews and the Assyrians. And so you see why there's such tension at all times between the Jews and the Samaritans all the way down into Jesus' day. You have these problems all the way through. 
And so you've got that. And then Judah, on the other hand, they split. And they're pretty bad as well. They're not quite as bad as the northern kingdom. Also, uh, southern kingdoms, 19 kings, summer, about half and half, good and bad. Most don't, even the ones that are so-so, okay, don't end well. Only about four of them really follow God their whole way. And so what happens is they last a little longer because they're a little more faithful and they at least try at different times to follow God. And so they last longer. You've got uh, Israel falling in 722, but Judah lasts until 586 B.C. when Babylon comes in. The Babylonian captivity. And the way they do is they come in and they wipe everything out and they take the best of the best with them. They take them out. They say... They take the young, uh, smart people and the, the strong and whatever, and they say, we'll take them back and we'll indoctrinate them into our way of thinking, and then they'll grow up to be great people in our kingdom and we'll use them. And so that's the way Babylon works. And so what happens is they go and they take some out and they pull them out and they bring them into Babylon. And what you've got is uh, during that time, before the collapse and even right after that, you've got a lot of prophets speaking into that. That's when Habakkuk... And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Micah and Zephaniah, they're all prophesying around that time. I started with the thing about Lamentations at the beginning, that it doesn't make any sense if you just read Lamentations. Lamentations is Jeremiah writing after Babylon has come in and wiped everybody out. And he's looking at the destroyed city and what it looks like and what happened. And so when you, when you have that background and then you open Lamentations, you go, ah, oh, this makes sense. That's why Jeremiah says things like, my teeth are knocked out with gravel. And you go, what? You open that and you read it, but then when you put it in context, you go, well, yeah, that makes sense. And so that's the picture of what happens, and he pulls them out. And so that gives us the setting of Daniel and Ezekiel, Daniel being the, the perfect picture of what happens in Babylon. They take Daniel. He's one of the bright ones that they bring into the kingdom. But Daniel is faithful to God and God uses Daniel and that's just during that time you see that with Daniel. But then you have the, the, the last part of the, uh, the channel in the Old Testament is the restoration. They've been taken off, but then uh, kingdoms rise and fall and they're all under God's doing all the way through. God allows Persia to come in and take over. Cyrus becomes king and he allows them to return to the land. He says, okay, you can go back. And so they do, and they go in three waves, three sections. The first uh, being they go under with Zerubbabel to, to rebuild the temple. Allows about 50,000 Jews to go back, and they start to rebuild the temple. And then shortly after that, not too long after that, Ezra comes back, and he's the priest. And that's why there's a heart. Zerubbabel, you've got the temple above, then you've got the heart for Ezra. Ezra is the priest that's going to rebuild their hearts. He teaches them the law, and he shows them how we return and how we get back to who God is, and and what we should be doing. And then thirdly, there's, a, there's another section that's led by Nehemiah, and he comes back to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the city. And so that's what, what happens, and, and they go back, and you see that in the books of Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. Also, in between those, uh, Zerubbabel and Esther, there's, there's the ploy to wipe out, out the Jews, and that's where Esther steps in. That's where Esther, the book of Esther takes place. And so what you have is that takes us to the end of the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament, they've made their way back and they've rebuilt the walls and they've reinstituted temple worship and they're, and they're trying to follow God and they're trying to be good about it and, and stick with them. And so that's where we are at the end of the Old Testament and that's 400 years before Christ would come. But a lot happens in what we call the silent years and that's where we have the heading of preparation. 
A whole lot happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the preparation, uh, just to give you, there's a lot we could talk about, but just real quickly for, for the sake of time, you have Alexander the Great conquers the world, makes everybody, Hellenizes, that means they make everybody Greek in their thought and their language and the way they do. That was his goal, make everybody like the Greeks. And so he does and he establishes Greek as the universal language. It's not a perfect correlation, but it's kind of like English being the language that people speak all around the world today. It was like that with Greek. And so what happens is everybody's speaking the same language, and then in that time, the Septuagint is put together. If you know what that is, the Septuagint, uh, that's what the, the LXX there in the middle, that's for 70, 70 scholars get together and they put the Old Testament into Greek. And that takes place in this time. And they, So what happens is now the Old Testament is all together and it's uh, assembled in the language of the people of the day and everybody can read it. And so when, when the Israel was taken into captivity and they were spread out, not all of them came back when they came back to rebuild. So they're still spread out all over, but now they're spread out and they're setting up synagogues. And not only that, they have the Bible in the language of the people. And so then, then time passes and kingdoms rise and fall and then Rome takes over. When Rome takes over, they uh, build roads to connect everything. The Roman roads, they, they put everything together where, where travel is possible in the world at that time, much easier than it's ever been before. And they also, uh, it's the Pax Romana, they establish a time of peace. And so everything's relatively quiet and set. And so what happens then is uh, there's limited religious freedom under this time of peace under Rome. And so all of these things line up perfectly just so Paul, uh, so God can now send his son into the world. And so that's why Paul says in Galatians 4 that it was the fullness of time when Jesus came. It was the fullness of time because there's, there's basically one universal language and there's religious, uh, somewhat of a religious freedom and people can move freely and all these things and it's all set up perfectly. The scene is set for Jesus to come. And so then the next thing happens is the purchase happens. And so we followed this line all the way down and all those, Things are messed up and they're all over the place and it doesn't seem like all the promises that God's made to Abraham seem so distant. They're not a great nation. Most of the people are, are scattered. They do have some temple worship. They do have some people. Uh, there are still a lot of Abraham's descendants, but it's all scattered. And so that promise seems so far off. And then at that time, God, the, the promise to bless the world through Abraham's seed picks back up. And Jesus comes. And we didn't have time to hit on all those, but throughout the Old Testament, it becomes clearer and clearer that through the prophets and through uh, in Genesis way back all the way through that Jesus would come through the tribe of Judah and he'd come from the house of David and he'd be a suffering servant. He'd be all these things. And, and so all along, the story's still there, although it's faint and they're not exactly sure. They're still looking for the Messiah. The Jews are still looking. But you can imagine, and we've talked about this a bunch when we've done different series on the Gospels, the misunderstanding of who Jesus would be, that he'd be an earthly king. Here's the Jews spread all out. Uh, They're under Roman rule. They don't really have the land. They don't have all these things. You can see why their thinking is the Messiah will come and bring us back to a land and make us a great people and be an earthly nation. It makes sense. You can see why they got into that. But the truth is Jesus came to do something so much greater than anything they can imagine. He wasn't coming just to be an earthly king. 
He was coming to live the perfect life. We said at the beginning that God says we can do blessings or curses depending on whether or not we trust Him. So all of us, every one of us is a sinner. We've all ignored God and the world He's created. So the truth is we all deserve the curse of being put away and the things that come with our sin and we don't deserve God's presence because of the way we've ignored Him. And so Jesus comes and instead, uh, or say, for the only time ever, comes and lives the perfect life. He lives everything perfectly. The way He talks, the way He acts, the way He interacts, the way He loves people, what He does. And He keeps uh, the covenant with God. He deserves all the blessings because He does everything perfectly and He's the only one ever to do so. And He comes and He lives perfectly and He does all of that and then it comes to the end of His life and He lays His life down so that we can now have the blessings that He deserved and He takes our curse. Curse is the one who hangs on a tree. Jesus comes and He willingly lays His life down to give us the exchange so God can still be just and holy and perfect, but He can restore the relationship that we were made for and we, uh, that, that's what our whole life is about. And not only that, He can come and then restore all of creation by His work and what He's done. He undoes all the sin and all the problems and all of it by taking it all on Himself. And so we get to the fourth promise. When Jesus dies and has the resurrection and comes back, He shows through the resurrection that God has accepted His sacrifice that He allowed Him to take our curse, that He's now allowing Him to give us our blessing, and so He's blessing the world through His seed. We get the blessing through what Jesus did, and that's the fourth part of Abraham's covenant and promise. And it was always, always about Jesus. It was always about what Jesus was coming to do and to remake all things and restore us to God. It was never about just an earthly kingdom. Or just a piece of land, or just a it was always so much greater than that. And so Jesus comes, and he uh, the the resurrection shows that God has has accepted this, and sin has been defeated, and all things will be made new. And so what happens is uh, it's accepted, and so we then get Jesus says, "Okay, it's done. I've done my work here on earth. I will be back. But in the meantime, you go and tell everybody what's happened. Go tell them." what God's done. Go tell them how the whole story of the Abrahamic covenant and blessing the world through your seed was about me and how the whole whole Old Testament was about Jesus and how it all points to Him and how this all comes together and when I return, how it will all be made perfect. And basically what Jesus says is, I've won, I'm reigning, everything is set right, but I'm going to come back, I'm I'm going to leave you for a time, but you have my spirit, now go do this and tell people. Now, we won't ever completely bring the kingdom to fruition in our efforts, but He graciously allows us to be involved in it until He comes back to to consummate the whole thing. And so we get to the end of the Gospels and you have the Great Commission and that's what happens. And so what happens is the next phase is the proclamation and that's Acts. Jesus says you go uh, from Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth and you tell everybody and you go whatever. That's what Acts is. Acts starts in Jerusalem and you see it uh, when you read through Acts, it's, it's circles that get bigger and bigger going out. starts in Jerusalem and then Judea, and then you've got Ethiopians getting saved, and then you've got Paul going to Rome, and you've got it growing and growing and going out and going out. And it's because they're so taken with who Christ is that they can't stand it that they just go out and they tell everyone. And it's the proclamation. And they boldly proclaim who God is and what He's done. And during that time, is, is Paul and Acts is His... Uh, 
his missionary journeys, he goes out and he's planting churches and he's telling people. And then all his letters and the epistles are written during that time. He goes and visits the church and he sets it up and he tells them the gospel and he gets things set up and then he moves on. And then he hears, for instance, in Corinth, they're all messed up. They're getting it wrong and they're way off on different things. So he writes them a letter and says, no, 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 you missed it here, here, and here. And so he sends them a letter. And so what you get after Acts, the next one is the explanation. That's the epistles. That's the letters. The letters that are written and sent out to the churches and uh, to, the, to the new believers and what's happening. And they're, and they're explaining and refining and saying, no, 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 it's not quite like that. It's like this. And, and this is how God's moving and this is what he does. And so God uh, inspires all these letters and all this so that they can explain it better and that we know and we have his word and we can see what all of it means and how it lines up. And he sends that out. And so when we get to that point, the letters going out and acts happening and um, there's, there's a church uh, planning movement uh, that we kind of have a loose affiliation with called Acts 29. And if you know Acts, Acts is 28 chapters. And so their, their whole point is Acts 29 is we're still the church. We're still doing the same thing that they were doing here with the proclamation. That's where we are. That's where we are in the big picture. It's Acts 29 now. We're supposed to go and plant churches and tell people and do this in the Great Commission and go out and make disciples. And that's our job as the church and that's where we work in the story. And so when we look at the big picture, it's not like, okay, this is what God did and now it's over and we can go read about it. We're right in the middle of it. We're right where it is. And so that's, that's kind of, I like that name of the, the Acts 29 because it says, okay, now we're doing, we're writing Acts 20, we're, we're doing that. We're now making, going out and making disciples and spreading the word and telling. And so that's where we sit today. And then there's one last part in a, oh, I went backwards. The climax, or the culmination, and the end of the story is Christ will return. And when he returns, all the things that he purchased and started and he's reigning that he did, he's going to reveal when he returns. He's reigning now and he's defeated sin. He's made us at one with God. He's given us the Holy Spirit. But when He returns, we will see it fully. And so the picture there of a throne and the, and the separation, when it comes to the end, we have the option of either trusting God in the way that He's provided through Jesus, and if so, we get all the blessings that go with that. We get the blessings of what Jesus did for us, and we get eternity with God and all things made new and all the bad undone, and everything is restored and it's perfect the way we were supposed to be and meant to be and all is glorified and it's wonderful or we can reject him we can ignore him and we get the curses and that is an eternity apart from him and that's all the way throughout scripture but fortunately Jesus came and purchased that we can be back with him and so the climax the culmination when we are in Christ is the greatest possible hope there is of what God is going to come and restore and do so that's the uh it's 10 o'clock on the nose. How about that? That uh, The prayer of give us our time, write to it, God answered that. So any questions or comments? I know that's super fast. There's so many things we just have to kind of fly through and fly over uh, to do that. But hopefully seeing it just in one sitting like that gives you kind of the big picture. It helps you drop some things down where they go and, and how they go together. So uh, just any Questions or comments or anything before we end? We'll, we'll end with prayer in just a minute. But. Yeah. I, I made that in a class when I was in seminary. I made an overview. So, 
uh, yeah, that's what that came from. Anything else? Anybody? All right. If you're interested, just tell me or come by the office or whenever. I'll have to dig it out and find it. I actually had to write a thing that went with this. It's like maybe 12 pages. It's, you know, probably a couple paragraphs with each slide. So it's a little more in-depth than what I just did. But you're welcome to have that if that helps you at all or you would want it. Uh, I just have to find where I have that somewhere on a file, on a computer or something somewhere. But uh, anyway, if that's it, we'll uh, we'll close with prayer and then... You'll have a little time before worship. our worship time begins. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this uh, wonderful, beautiful picture that is the way you revealed to us, that, uh, that uh, you love us, that even though uh, we have repeatedly uh, turned our backs on you and we ignore you in your world, that you love us and you pursue us and you've purchased the way that we can return to you and we thank you for that. We pray that, uh, that we would not see uh, your story uh, your your scripture, but your story of, of redemption and where our whole world is moving is something old or past or in the Bible, but we would see us uh, just clearly as part of it, that you're still the God uh, that is moving and active and, and sustaining this world today that you were all throughout scripture. And I uh, just pray that you'd give us a heart to be involved, uh, to be used by you in your, your wonderful story of reconciliation and redemption, and we'd be excited about that. We thank you for all you do for us. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Yeah, I don't...